last half of Amos in chapter 9, just a little simple outline that came from Montier, an Englishman. Verse 11, write down, the king. Verse 12, the nations. Verse 13, the earth. Verse 14, the people. And lastly, verse 15, the land. In that confession of faith we read from just a little while ago, had to do with the inerrancy and sufficiency of the word. But then in the middle of that reading, it had a little paragraph or a sentence or two that had to do with how you interpret this infallible authoritative word. Look with me at what it says. The infallible rule number nine is that scripture is to be interpreted by scripture. That is to say one part by another. Hence, any dispute as to the true, full, and evident meaning of a particular passage must be determined in the light of clearer, comparable passages. In biblical interpretation, you always start with what we've called around here, and obviously in other places too, grammatical, historical interpretation or exegesis of the passage. You look at what it says in the original languages, study the verbs and the tenses and the roots of the words and all those kind of things, and you see what it actually said to the person that first read it. Then you look a little bit, study the culture around that period of time, and then the history behind that particular passage, maybe, and also behind the particular book you're studying, and then the history of the writer and the culture and everything around that, and put it in that context. Then it goes on a little further here, that after you do that, you need to follow what is called the Apologia of Scriptura. That's a fancy word, a little Latin, throw a little Latin lingo for you there this morning, speaking in tongues a little bit. <laughs> the idea is that scriptures themselves are to be used anytime it's not absolutely clear from the grammar and historical and cultural context, you look at other scriptures that apply to it. But involved in that same rule is not just blindly or randomly finding associated passages and trying to put it all together. It's also involved that you take the obscure things and you find clearer passages that are more direct on that topic and allow the more clear passages to interpret the ones that are less clear. You don't take obscure things and superimpose them upon clear things. But beyond that, you also have a progressive kind of revelation, interpretation, the apologia fide, faith. The larger, big, really big foundational theological statements and principles of scripture, of orthodox Christianity, you find how it also fits in that. Progressive revelation. Scripture by scripture. Then again, the idea of the progressive nature of it, we take the writing, excuse me, the law, first five books of the Bible and the history books, and you use the prophets and the psalmist and the poetic literature to comment or make those things more clear. But then in the New Testament, you have Jesus that takes the law and the prophets and the writings, and he interprets those things. And then you look in the writings after the gospels, the epistles, and you let the epistles finish out 
all of the application and interpretation of what goes on before. You don't take the Old Testament and interpret the New Testament by it. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament. With a couple of those things in mind, we're going to look for just a moment at the last half of Amos in chapter 9. Again, verse 11. The king. Might write out there also, the end of shadows. It mentions here, in that day, the day of the Lord, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repairs branches. What is a shadow? As I walk along this stage right now, I can see my shadow. That's not really me, is it? This is me. This is reality. That's a vague image, a vague outline. The idea here is that if you study all of Scripture, you find out that we're speaking here of the booth of David. The end product, the real interpretation at the end of all of this is the real David, the second David. Who is that? The son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second and the greater David. All of these things are about him. Do you doubt that? That it's all about Jesus? Just in case you do, listen with me or turn to Luke in chapter 24. Is Amos about Jesus? Luke in chapter 24, as he was walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples, they were speaking and wondering and mumbling among themselves and Jesus comes along and he says, what are you talking about? And they say, are you the only guy in all of the Judea and Jerusalem doesn't know what's happened? We thought that this man, Jesus, who we've been following, we thought that he was the Messiah. We thought that he was going to bring about the restoration of the Davidic kingdom. He was going to restore Israel. He was going to be the militaristic and political king and restore us to our rightful place in the world. And people are going to bow down to us. The Jews once again. But Jesus said to them, you're looking for a militaristic, material, political restoration of Israel? Jesus himself says, verse 28, Oh, foolish ones. Sometimes I think that maybe Jay and Darby C.I. Schofield, Charles Finney, and Brother Hagee in San Antonio need to walk with Jesus a little bit, hear him say, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he told them how they all spoke of him. And just in case they didn't get the message a little later on, he repeated it to them once again down in verse 44. These are my words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance 
And forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. The king in this passage, David, the end product, that it's Christ. And he's the end of the shadows. He's the real thing. He's the ultimate. He's the culminating person, not just of eternity, but all of history, all of eternity, the culminating feature for his people. Verse 11 again, the king, the end of the shadows when Christ came. Verse 12, the nations, the end of separation. Verse 12, and they shall possess the remnant of Edom and the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. You'll recall for just a moment back there at the end of Luke in chapter 24, that last passage that I read, Jesus, he was speaking of how all these things apply to him. And they are about him. He says at the end, go and declare these things I'm telling you, that all those writings were about me. You go and declare them, it says, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to who? To all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. In other words, Christ this passage about the real king, King Jesus, about him taking his teachings and expanding his kingdom beyond just ethnic Israel to encompass the elect of all the nations of every tribe and tongue across the globe. It's the end of separation. Now, do you doubt that? If we let scripture interpret scripture, what do the scriptures say? about what Jesus is saying here. You'll turn with the Acts in chapter 15. Not just scripture interpreting scripture, but the apostles together in council interpreting the scriptures. Who is Amos in chapter 9, the end of it all about? Peter had been out preaching the gospel to the Gentiles some, and then Paul particularly preaching to the Gentiles and they have a little bit of a dispute. Some Judaizers come along behind them where they have one people to Christ. People come into the church and some of these Judaizers that are still looking for the material, political, military kingdom come along and say, okay, it's so good. It's good to be following Jesus, but you also need to be following Moses. And you need to have all these things done to your flesh and abide by all these rules and all these other things. You need to add that to the gospel. They were still looking for that other kingdom. But after the dispute arose and the apostles had time to study just a little bit, what was their conclusion? Look with me down, chapter 15, verse 15. And with these words of the prophets agreed. James speaking, and he says the words of the prophets, plural, not just the prophet he's about to quote, but all the prophets agree with this, if you study them in their whole, in the big picture. But he goes on to quote Amos in chapter 9. He says, all this business of the Gentiles being included, all this business of the greater David coming along, and the greater, bigger, eternal kingdom coming along? This is what Amos was talking about. After this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David, 
that has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of all mankind shall seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Doesn't that sound familiar from Amos in chapter 9? If you have a newer translation of the scriptures, it's inset, signifying that it is a quotation from the Old Testament. All the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. In other words, he was telling, Jesus was telling us, way back in the book of Amos, there was a greater David coming, eventually. The shadows would go away. And that all the nations, the elect of all the nations would be part of this kingdom of God. Aren't you glad that it's not just them anymore? This elect of the Jews as well as of the Gentiles? Well, mm, what do the rest of the scripture say? What does scripture comment about that? Turn away to Romans in chapter 10 for just a minute. And progressive revelation. Progressive interpretation. Hermeneutics. What does Paul say about that? That was James. We had Jesus saying it. It's all about him. That James says Amos was about this. And then Paul says, Romans 10 verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between who? Jews and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. Look over chapter 11 for just a minute. Verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. In other words, there was, he says it another way, in another place, not all Israel was Israel. There was a remnant inside of Israel, the true spiritual Israel. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. Verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Did the elect fall? By no means. Spiritual Israel ever fallen? By no means. Rather through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespasses mean riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not the, be not the arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember... Is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. We're grafted on to the original Israel. We are those that are circumcised in heart. And we're part of the kingdom of his kingdom. Now, does Paul make that even clearer as you go through progressive revelation? Turn with the Galatians for just a moment. Galatians in chapter 3. This must have been very, very important to Paul, but he includes it in almost all his letters. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. So then, the law was a guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, we like that. 
You always do. It's true that the law drives us to Christ. But sometimes we stop reading there. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is now Jews and Greeks, Americans and British people, Africans, Oriental people. And they're all different. Is that what it says? No. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And there's going to come a later day, somewhere in the distant future, when Jews will be saved again by keeping the sacrifices and being Jews. And there'll be a separation once again of Jews and Greeks and everybody else. Now, the last part's not there, is it? <laughs> it stops with you, the Galatians, the Gentiles, have been saved by faith that you are heirs with the original spiritual Israel. Now, just turn a page in your Bible to the book of Ephesians. We wonder whether or not Paul wants to really emphasize this point. We'll look just a little bit more. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Therefore remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, at one time. But what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand, remember that you were at that time not this time, at that time, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But what? Now, 2,000 years ago, Paul's writing, then a few decades after the death of Christ, <clears throat> the resurrection. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in, by his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances of the Old Testament, that he might create in himself one new Man. One. In place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God. Jews have always been reconciled in one way to God. By faith. As in Abraham. We are all sons of Abraham. By faith. And he's reconciled us all the same way into one body through what? The cross. Thereby killing the hostility between us. We are the heirs of the promises. According to Scripture. Not according to me. 
but according to the scriptures. The king, the end of the shadows. Verse 12, the nation, the end of separation. But then, verse 13, the earth, the end of the curse. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the tread of grapes who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills, <clears throat> excuse me, shall flow with the end of the curse. What happened in Genesis in chapter 3? When Adam fell, humankind received the curse, didn't it? Separated from God. But as a result of that cursing of Adam and the human race, what was the next thing that happened? Confluent with it. Verse 17 or 18 says that after that happened, the earth received or participated, was cursed. And Adam's life, not only was he sentenced to death, physically and spiritually at that time, not only was that going on, but the earth was cursed. It made his life a whole lot harder. In other words, rather than living in paradise, there with Everything working like it was supposed to. The animals being at peace with humankind and at peace with one another. And the fruit and the vegetables and all those things coming along. All of a sudden what happened? The ground was cursed, it says. And said from now on, rather than it yielding its abundance, you're going to have to eat bread by the, what? Sweat of your brow. It's going to yield what? Thistles and thorns. And all those kind of things. We see that every day of our life still today. I was looking to see if we have any of our yard guys working here. Yeah, there's Brother Matthew back there. You go right out here. One of my greatest frustrations in life <laughs> is dealing with this cursed yard out here. <laughs> you know, you don't have to do a single thing to that yard. And it'll grow sticker burrs and weeds and vines just abundantly. You can't stop them. You don't even need rain. They just cut. <laughs> but you have to till it to have nice grass and all those kind of things. That's part of the curse. Thorns and thistles coming all the time. The Bible tells us, though, that in the days to come, in that day, what does it say? About those things. Look at me in Romans just again for just a minute. Romans chapter 8. What about this curse? Romans chapter 8. What's the effect? Verse 18. Paul wrote, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For who is waiting? Creation waits with an eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Part of man's curse, part of the curse of sin, 
lead and the true greater David, gathering all the nations together. He's not only the greater David, the greater king, the final king, he's also, Jesus is the second Adam that brings about the reversal of the curse on the earth. How do I know that? Peter says, in the days coming, the day of the Lord, Peter wrote and said that the earth is going to be restored. There'll be new heavens and a new earth. And once again, paradise restored with the second Adam to the point that the earth will yield without all of David's sweat. I was thinking about David out there in his garden, his work on his farm. <laughs> it's hard work, isn't it, Brother David? It doesn't come by itself. Days are coming. We won't have to work at it so hard. He'll just do what it's supposed to do. The earth is the end of the curse. But the people, the end of disappointment and frustration. Look with me down here. I will restore the fortunes of my people. and They'll rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall plant gardens and eat their fruit. Lisa is a big gardener. Come to think of it. Is it hard to get that ground to do something? Are you ever frustrated by weeds? You ever get frustrated by grasshoppers in your garden? Birds pecking on your fruit trees, on your peaches and your plums? That's frustrating, isn't it? It's frustrating when you start out in life and leave home and you plan a career and all your fallen nature takes control of your good plans, you think. And along the way, maybe marriage doesn't work out like you want it to. Maybe there's death early in the family. Maybe there's business failures. Maybe there's moral failures and all these things. It just seems like life at every turn is frustrating to us. But here it says, that renewed earth, that renewed Eden, the renewed paradise, it's not just going to be there. We're going to participate in it. We will enjoy it. The frustrations of our life will be gone. Living in paradise once again. The end of disappointment. The last of all the land. The end of insecurity. No doubt when they were reading this the first time. What was going on in their lives? They had been taken first. Out of Ur of the Chaldees. Just drifted through there for a while. Ended up in Egypt. Always visiting, not always at home. After a while, they wandered in the wilderness. And then they got into their land. And then what happened? What's about to happen after the end of Amos here? They're about to leave again. Total insecurity in life. Even in our day, we place a lot of our security and feelings of safety and fulfillment. We place those in, well... I finally paid for my house. I got it paid for. I've got my little farm out here and I've got it paid for. It's going to be there forever. 
And things are going to keep going like they've always gone. And I finally got it made. I got to retire. And now I don't have to work anymore. And I pay for my house. And I can enjoy my house and my garden and my cows. And all these other things. But they don't yield that ultimate satisfaction to it. You can be, have all your insurance taken care of and your retirement and all those kind of things. And lo and behold, our wonderful, benevolent federal government comes along and just unplugs all of it. And there you are back again. You say, I've got enough money to live on forever. Then our wonderful federal government comes along in the world economy and devalues the money you have in the banks and won't buy anything anymore, hardly. And you say, well, I'm going to retire and enjoy life. And the next thing you know, you've had a heart attack or a stroke and you can't enjoy all those things you laid up. Total insecurity. And if you follow along with a lot of our uh, Pentecostal brethren, all along, while all that's going on, you're thinking to yourself, I could lose my soul in my heaven at any moment. Total insecurity in this world. But what's the end of all of it? Luke, Jesus saying that this is about me and James saying that all it's about the Gentiles being included. Peter saying there's going to be restoration of the earth and removal of the curse. What's the final point of security for us? Revelation chapter 21. Playing off what Peter said, I suppose. The restoration of all things. John said, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Peter said it was going to pass away. John sees it in the future it had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. All frustration. All effects of the curse. He'll wipe away and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying. Tired of mourning. Tired of crying a lot. No pain anymore. Tired, tired of hurting Tired of watching other people hurt? Do you love? No more pain anymore. For everything, all the former things have passed away. Jesus says, he that sitted on, seated on the throne, the ultimate king, the final David, the second Adam, seated on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. Finally, the end of insecurity. Verse 24, by its light, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Gates will never be shut. There'll be no night there. They'll bring the glory and the honor of the nations to this heavenly, eternal, renewed king, the end of the shadows, the nation, the end, separation, the people, the end of the curse, 
on creation, the end of all our frustrations, and the end of all of our insecurities. Let's bow together for just a moment.